Ugh, I'm not in the mood. Do we have to do this? Yes. Wait, are we recording? Okay, let's go. You're listening to The Allie Colbert Show. Welcome back to The Allie Colbert Show. I'm your host, Allie Colbert. Thank you for joining me. I am still in sunny Florida. Isn't that like the slogan of Florida? It's like sunshiny, sunshine, oranges, Florida. Florida, where you get a gun and you go to Disney World. Florida, it's hot and it's heavy. It's hot and the people are heavy. I am done with this Florida trip. I have been here for so I have I don't know how long I've been I don't I've lost all count of time I'm keeping my only I'm using a sundial I'm making little cave drawings on the walls in my parents house it's done I know this trip to Florida is done because I've lost over 50% of my living grandparents everyone's died on this trip that's how you know it's been a great trip to Florida is you've sat shiva for two weeks in a row. And that makes it a Floridian vacation. I'm done. I'm done. I honestly, I do feel this way though, that when, and I did lose both, both of my grandfathers this week, really weird. I mean, look, they're, they're old, you know, like they were toward, they were leaning towards the end of their life, but just the timing of them both dying this past week was bizarre. But I do always feel that when we lose someone in our family, my mom and I always joke that we end up having such a good time sitting Shiva or being at a funeral like like the yeah, it's just Shiva because you see all of these relatives you haven't seen in so long and everyone has their like wall guards down and you're eating good food and then you start laughing. And honestly, that's the way funerals and yes, in the Jewish religion, we sit Shiva where we just we say, listen, I'm not leaving my house you come bring me snacks, you come bring me food. And I actually sit Shiva all the time. I say to Julian, I'm sitting here. Please just cater my life while I cry. Okay, I want to sit Shiva daily. But we end up having like these like great times with our relatives that we haven't seen so long. We laugh and we eat hot, you know, good big trays of food. So I'm just saying we should sit Shiva more often, right? It's a nice thing, everyone getting together. There's actually, there's a guy in Florida that we were joking about who's a Shiva crasher who like goes to all of the different Shivas and everyone's like, how did he know dad again? And then like on the fifth day of sitting Shiva, they go up to him and they're like, what are you? And he, he like, he like researches like who the guy, who the person was and where they were from. I was also from that part of Long Island and he just comes for the chicken cacciatore. Yeah, I'm wrapping up Florida. I've I've watched the Vanderpump Rules drama unfold. By the way, just for context, I did put tanning lotion all over myself and have to stand still for 10 minutes naked, and that's when I'm recording this right now. So I am fully naked in a guest room of my parents' house, standing upright, speaking into a microphone while my grandma obsessive-compulsively checks the weather. I don't really know what's going on, but I do feel like I'm in a psych ward. I, I should be put in a psych ward if I'm not in one right now. I've been watching the Vanderpump Rules drama unfold, uh, or as my phone likes to call it, Vanderpool. 
I don't know much about Vanderpump Rules, but I do know that Tom Sandoval is in a lot of trouble. And if this new, like whenever the news on like a show like that that I don't watch is like incessantly breaking through the like Vanderpump algorithm and like hitting me in the chest, then I know it's a big deal because like it's peeking through into like people's lives who like I don't care about that show. But for those of you that don't know the Vanderpump Rules drama, I'm going to explain it. So basically Lisa Vanderpump is a Wiccan. She's a British Wiccan and she moved to the United States and she, along with a, an old, old man, an old gay man, opened up a diner. Um, and that diner is where every one of the waitresses and waiters, like every time someone orders uh, pancakes, I think, or like a dessert, they all do like a Broadway song. And I forget what her diner is called. It's called like Malibu Seaside, something like that. And the waitresses and the waiters there were like very, you know, they were cutesy with the songs and they would, you know, kind of they had like a cute little relationship with each other. And then they they you said, well, let's make this a show. So they made that show about this this Wiccans diner that she owns with her gay husband. And all the waitresses and the waiters started getting like using drugs at the diner. So the show is really about them, you know, hiding the fact that they're users while they serve people breakfast, lunch, dinner. And what happened is one of the waiters started dating a a female fry cook. And that fry cook ended up telling the waiter, she said, I, I, I am trans. And so everyone's freaking out right now because it was a huge shock. And that's basically the Vanderpump rules drama and then there was another there's someone else who works part-time at that diner and he he was actually sleeping with the trans fry cook so that's listen i and that i don't know who's who but i know that that is basically you know point by point exactly what happened i hope that clears things up for people that don't watch the show and just sheds a little light on what's going on. It's clearly a very big deal. And, and they're all now, t- everyone's t- tweeting about it. Everyone that works at the diner, they're saying, you, I'm not going to, you're not going to believe this. Well, I was in the diner. So that's sort of what's happening. And I hope that really clears things up. Today on the show, we have Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I've wanted to have Alexandra Solomon, Dr. Solomon on the podcast for a really long time. I'm glad we finally made it happen. She's giving me Dr. Jana vibes first episode of the new year. Like I really loved that episode. I really felt like, you know, I was like, okay, my cherry's being popped in this other like therapeutic dimension. Does this, I don't know if any of this makes sense. I'm just, I'm sorry. I can't edit this either. So just good luck. But I loved it. She hosts Reimagining Love, which is a podcast. She has a book, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. She's great. And I love her Instagram page. Just love her Instagram page. And that's really how you get the full scope of a human being. So Dr. Alexandra Solomon, enjoy the episode. Subscribe, like, comment, give me five stars. You know, it's funny. I look at the reviews probably like I I, I shouldn't look at the reviews as much as I do. Like once in a while I'll look and it's every time I do it's too much, even if it's once in a while. And I noticed someone in a review, they said that I was mean spirited. They said, I don't know. I I can't remember what they said. Something with the word mean. And then I started thinking that like, I don't really feel like male comedians get 
this like criticism that they're mean ever. Like I feel like we've kind of made mean We've sort of gendered mean to being like a female word because if men are mean, it's usually we say that the people who like don't be like, oh, don't be sensitive when you listen to him or like he he's no bullshit. He's ruthless, like so good, so brutal. You know, like we would never say you'd never be like, oh, you know, Bill Burr's so mean. Like that's just not the language we would use. And I feel like we just don't call men mean a lot. Like mean is such like a like that woman is mean, like that woman is opinionated and like her opinions are a little edgy and like her jokes can be a little dirty or nasty. And like, then she becomes a bitch. She becomes a cunt. She becomes mean. So like, I'm just highlighting that as like this idea that I'm having of just like, I don't, whatever. I just don't, I just don't, I'm definitely not mean if you know me. And by the way, this isn't me like needing to like respond to that review because like my feelings are hurt and I need to respond to every like negative comment I have because I have negative comments all over the internet all the fucking time. And it's exhausting if I take all of them on, which I don't, I intentionally don't. I think if there's any pain in that, there's pain in feeling like misunderstood, like, oh God, like I've put in such an effort to vulnerably show parts of myself where I'm making comedy or I'm being authentic about myself or my relationship or the work I'm doing and being misunderstood is painful. I don't take on the mean thing because I'm not mean. So I I know that to not be true. However, I did have this realization of just like, I don't feel like we vilify men and call them mean when they're comedians in the same way that we do women. Because I've heard a lot of this feedback about like my fellow female comics as well. Like she's mean. It's like, no, she's being... Anyway, that's a thought. Food for thought. Enjoy the episode. I love you guys. I think like two weeks until merch is out. I'm going to do a hot merch drop on my stories. So watch my stories because that's where they're going to go live. Okay, dolls. Be safe. Love you. Enjoy your Tuesday. Ciao, babies. Baby Colbertos. Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I'm. We became Instagram friends, which is how we know each other. I think, did I, was I following you first or were you following me? I don't know how this happened. I don't know either, but I think, I think what happened is something, and I was trying to remember getting ready for this conversation today, some clip of yours had gone viral and it was so freaking hilarious to me that I think that I like not just reposted it, but I like slid in your DMs. I was like, hi, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember what it was. You were talking about therapy or dating or what the heck it was. And I, I can't even track it now. I'm sure I could dig it up, but um. I'll have to look after, but thank you. That's so nice. I, and I, you know, once you started following me, I went on a spiral, which sounds negative, but it was like a good spiral through your page. And you have one of my favorite pages on Instagram. And for my listeners, I had on uh, Dr. Jana, who has an Instagram that feels similarly sort of like abundant in the information that it's offering and also a bunch of like new language that is like really exciting. Like I just love being able to like constantly reframe things in a different light and yeah you it's just one of the it's one of the gifts of technology is to be able to like connect with uh people like yourself and get all of the you know the wisdom that you're sharing before we like go any further like if you wouldn't mind telling my guests a little about yourself and I know you have a podcast as well called reimagining love but uh I'm sure they'd love to hear from you so I 
I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training, but my whole career has been around relationships and sexuality. So I, I'm a couples therapist. Um, I work with individuals and couples. I teach. So I'm, I've been on faculty at Northwestern University for 20 plus years. So I have spent, I've, I've trained graduate students to become couples therapists. And then I teach this undergraduate class called Marriage 101. And this is, we'll start teaching it in a few weeks and it'll be our 23rd time teaching it. So it's been part of my life for longer than I've been like a parent. It's just been since I was, I don't know, 20, 21 or 22 years old, it's been something that I've been involved with. And it's just such a beautiful relationship education course where you, you know, we teach these students about love and sex and dating and how family of origin experiences, you know, set us up to experience love in particular ways. And so that's become, I also spend a lot of time just like on that line between academia and clinical work and the public, which has always been like, you know, doing TV work or working with journalists. But now that we're in this age of technology, you know, I, I have self-help books, I have e-courses, I have this Instagram feed, you know, I have a podcast. So it's really been fascinating for me as somebody who's been in this, in this work for a while to now feel like the world has caught up. Like the world, I keep saying like therapists are the cool kids, like for the first time ever, like people are like, talk to us more, you know, share your wisdom. And I, I don't, I don't have to like make the case anymore for why we all need to understand more about how relationships work. The case has been made and now I just get to kind of be in the flow of it. It's a really unique, exciting time. What is the, and I, I'm thinking about, you said marriage 101, what differentiates that course or those teachings from just relationship 101? I know, you know, the, I didn't name the course cause I was just a little, little baby graduate student at the time. My two mentors, two mentors of mine named the course and it's kind of, you know, it's like a little cheeky to call it marriage 101, but really yeah. I, I probably use the word marriage. I don't know. I could probably count in one hand, the number of times I use that all quarter. I think it kind of is, it's, it's unique though, right. To be like, these are college students and you're talking about marriage, but really I'm talking about relationships in part because marriage is a long ways away for them, for most of them, in part because many of them are deconstructing the notion of marriage. And they're like, do I even want to be part of this institution? So I've got students, you know, in my lecture hall of 115 students, I'll have, you know, like a, a conservative Christian, you know, student who's already engaged to be married, sitting next to a poly, kink, queer, fluid, expansive student. You know, so there's, there's, there is every shade and imagination of sexuality and gender and sort of like relationship architecture in that lecture hall. So my really cool challenge is to figure out how do I teach in a way that what I say can be used by every single person in this room. I want every student to feel as welcome in my space as the student sitting next to them. And that it's a, it's a challenge, right? Because when it comes to love and sex and relationships, like we got a lot of like dominant scripts that are filling all of our, you know, heads. And so I'm always trying to like expand, 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 expand. It's interesting to me that relationships are probably the most important thing in our lives. And then at the same time, we have like no formal training or education around what it means to be in relationships that like blows my mind. Like my partner and I, we had done this work through, it's called Atlas. It's the Atlas project. It's sort of like a part of like a life spring movement. It sounds kind of culty and weird when I talk about it, but it's basically somatic work, somatic inner work. And then there's an offshoot of it that is, there's a relationship workshop where you basically like ha you go into this container and you do somatic work about kind of what comes up for you in relationship. And it was amazing. 
amazing. And then at the same time, I'm like, I can't believe that like everyone, I mean, not everyone, but for the most part, no one has done this work. This work sounds weird when I talk about it. My parents certainly haven't done this work. My grandparents haven't done this work. We're all sort of just products of our circumstance, traumatized and reproducing, and then just kind of taking ill-informed advice from our friends and like winging it. Like I, I just, it's, it's amazing that this is happening. It's amazing. That's right. Do you, do you remember that movie? I mean, it's like, so probably like before you were even born, the, the parenthood, like the first parenthood when they were like, you have to have a license to go fishing, but they'll let any asshole become a parent, you know, like there is yeah, just no training for parenthood. There's no training for marriage, intimate partnership. You're right. And I think what, what I mean, listen, the, the field of like marital counseling, it's not a new field, but what's so interesting is like, it used to just be like, teach people to talk nicer to each other. Like it used to be very skills-based, very behavior-based. And I think that we're in this like really exciting time and the field of mental health in general, where we're working more on somatics, like the idea of what, you know, our bodies keeping the score, which is the title of, you know, that very, very, very popular book about trauma yeah. by Bethel Vanderkoek. So everyone is getting this kind of new, like a sort of like looking at lineage of what's gotten passed down, what our bodies are holding, not just from our own stories or our family stories, but our culture, right? Our lineage, our ancestry stories. And so that, because now there's such a willingness and curiosity to do that deep inner work, I think it does up level what people want and expect from relationship education, right? It's, we've got to go right. so much more than just like use an I statement, you know, or take a time out. Like it really is like what I imagine you and your partner did with this Atlas project was like working with like breath and eye contact, right? And like, and just really like being like doing intimacy. Intimacy is two people who are present, you know, to their own experiences and curious about each other's experiences. And that's like next level shit. Right. I mean, what do you, and I, I actually love couples therapy and I've done couples therapy in previous relationships and I've done like, I mean, we're not consistently in couples therapy, but we've, we've had our moments in couples therapy. I, I feel like I've been going, I've always loved therapy. Like individually, I've done therapy for like the last 10 years. But then at the same time, I do see that like in therapy, it's almost like when I'm activated outside of therapy and I have like, you know, I have these patterns that are not functional. I can go into therapy and like from like my cool demeanor kind of talk about it. But if I'm not doing some other work, it's kind of difficult for me to actually interrupt things when they come up. Like it's almost like I'm drunk and then I, I could tell, tell you about how I feel about it when I'm sober. But like, like that's kind of how I feel when it comes to like fighting or conflict in relationship it's like we're each in our own story and like we can talk about it in therapy but like it's so difficult have you seen couples therapy on showtime no i have not isn't that ridiculous no because i mean side issue but my husband is very i mean i could put my foot down and be like we're freaking getting showtime but i just have he's like we don't need it and i'm like but i technically do need it for my work so we just need to get showtime i need to watch a show i've met you know i have met her um, I like her a lot. I think she's super thoughtful, super sharp, but I have not watched the show. Oh, my God. It's phenomenal. I I'm obsessed with it. Uh, I'll give you my login. Like, it, it is amazing. She's so, so, like, savvy and sophisticated and just, like, on it. Like, it's amazing. Anyway, I don't, I guess I'm just, I, I think I'm just, like, voicing my own frustration with therapy sometimes that, like, it's just, like, not enough sometimes. I don't know. That's right. It's not enough sometimes because what, because I mean, that again, you know, your analogy of being drunk is, I think that is spot on, which is why talk therapy on its own 
isn't enough. It needs to be also like all the ways in which we we are like practicing and ensuring that we've got more and more and more capacity, you know, to stay like what, you know, like what trauma therapists say, like widening our zone of tolerance, right? Having increasing like spaciousness inside of us to stay curious versus going into that constricted, either blamey or shamey, you know, kind of place where we aren't, like we literally aren't thinking straight. Our IQ, our IQ is dropped, but I don't know that we ever, I mean, I've been married 25 years. I've been in therapy more than I haven't been. We've been in couples therapy. I do the work. I get, get my reps in as Resma Menicum would say, I'm getting my reps in, I'm doing the things. And I still can't always get it right with my husband because it goes fast and it's old and it's like a familiar path, which is why Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time teaching about repair. And I spend a lot of time doing repair, right? Like how to come back to a moment and ask for a redo, own your shit, you know, acknowledge, bear witness to it. So I think we're all, no matter how far we go in our healing, I think we're always going to need a set of tools. That's just about loving ourselves enough so that we can be humble enough to say to our partner, I don't like how I handled that moment. I'm sober now and I see it, you know? No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think like the idea of like learning how to like repair and what that looks like is really interesting. And like, I don't, I don't know, that word hasn't come up for me too much, but like it makes perfect sense to be like, oh yeah, how do we like work in repair? And like, we'll use language like we're like in a breakdown right now. We'll be like, I'm not seeing you. You're not seeing me. Like, let's, let's step away from this. Like we're both, no one can kind of hold the space. We're both in collapse. So we'll have to come back and then we'll circle back. But, you know, there's this idea and I saw you post something similarly on your Instagram of like, you know, Disney did us dirty. And I really couldn't agree more just because I always feel like I I'm huge in terms of falling in love. I'm just constantly doing it. And like I'll meet someone, I fall in love. And then it's that's the end of the Disney movie. Right. It's like, okay, they met each other there. They fell in love now happily ever after. And it's like. Well, you kind of left out the part where they have to like do life together, you know, and like it's been really challenging for me over, you know, I've been in a handful of serious relationships to to feel that I deeply love someone, but then also to be like, that doesn't mean like this relationship is for me. Like that question like haunts me that it's just like you can totally be in love with someone and they can still not it could, could just not be suited. Is that true? Or are people just not working hard enough? No, I, I think it's true. And listen, I think we're, I think we're trying to do long-term intimate relationships at a time when the context is so radically different. Like think about like your grandma, like your grandma got married because she literally couldn't, she couldn't write 19 because she couldn't get a credit card without, right. I presume you're, I presume it was a grandpa. Like I assume, presume that, you right. know, you don't have like, so, so there's so many edges that, you know, that you are on just purely by, you know, just in your existence and how you are, how you live and love, but your grandma literally needed your grandpa in order to do life. And your grandpa literally needed your grandma to do that part of life, right? Like domesticity and provider. Like that was that was the unitary single model. And it was no, not even a question of like, who's gonna do domesticity and who's gonna do provider? No, if you are a man, you do provider. If you're a woman, you do domesticity. End of story. Right. There are zero degrees of complexity. And we are now, some of us more than others, right? Like living, like loving on these edges of possibility. And when love is a choice rather than a duty, 
A, you can have radically more intimacy than probably was possible for our grandparents, but B, it it creates a kind of fragility, right? You don't have to be in relationship. And so when- yeah, Right, everything's uncoupled. Yeah, sex, you don't, sex can be outside of the relationship. Re- you, reproduction can be outside of sex. Like nothing is- Nothing's coupled. Contingent on, yeah. Nothing's coupled. Right. Which means that every single day, it's a choice to be in the relationship. Or at least to say- at least to say, you know, I talk about these two faces of commitment. One face of commitment is I'm here because I told you I'd be here. You know, like kind of like the guardrail. I'm here because we live together. I'm here because we share a cat. I'm here because we share a kid. I'm here because we merged our bank accounts. Like there's a guardrail and I'm here because it's a little bit hard to leave. And then the other face of commitment is I'm here because I want to be here. I like this curriculum that you're offering. I like how I'm growing with you. I like who I am with you. And we can't like both those things Commitment is both of those things, but you certainly have way more of the choice element. Like I'm here because I want to be here than your grandma ever could have imagined, right? Your grandma was, right. you know, she had to be there and hopefully she wanted to be there, but she really also had to be there. So there's like, that's this like both and of commitment, you know, that, that I just think, I think, and I think it ends up being a cycle where the more I'm not sure, the less I invest, but the less I invest, the more I'm not sure, oh, you know, God. I, I so see that, that I see that in every conversation around me about relationship is the half in half out. And it becomes this like chicken or egg thing of like, I don't know if the relationship doesn't work because you're like mixed about it. Or if you're mixed about it because the relationship's not working, how do you test that? I know. Well, I think, I mean, when I, you know, this is, I spend a lot of time. Fix it. Fix it. Right. Um, I spend a lot of time training therapists. You know, I do a lot of like workshops for therapists about relational ambivalence because it is so freaking common. And I do think one of the things that the individual needs to do is just go all in, go all Mm -hmm. in energetically all in, like don't create even these like mental exit ramps for yourself, at least for a while, because, and, and, And I think for those of us, for those with trauma histories where there's like a a fear of constriction or stuckness, I think that can be sort of a frightening proposition. So I think there's a need to like work on, I can be in this relationship and I can still have movement, individuality, agency, voice, but to just mentally be like, I'm here, I am giving this relationship my all because then at least, you know, at some point in time, if the relationship ends, you know, it's not ending because you weren't all in, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a few things then. What what do you what are some of the the qualities or the questions of today that you say these are the things maybe a guideline or a template of of asking how do I know this person's right for me Yeah I think the biggest one is I can raise a concern like I can raise when there's a pebble in my shoe right like a little thing that's just chapping my ass I can bring it up to you and rather than rolling your eyes And rather than saying, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, you'll say like, you'll even like take that exhale, right? And just be like, okay, let's talk about it. Like that's foundational. Can you raise a concern and look at it as a team? Because you could choose, you could keep churning, right? And that's the other thing, right? You can go back to your phone and keep swiping some more and you can find some more people to date. But there's not going to, there's going to be shit with every single person. This one, maybe the sex is a little better, but they get really defensive. This one, they're maybe not so ambitious, but they, whatever, are delicious chefs or something like there's, you know, it's always going to be something. So to me, it's more about like the quality, like, can we, 
do we both value creating emotional safety together and value like when when one of us has a concern, the other one, even if they want to be like, no, 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 they'll be like, okay, all right, I want to hear it. Right. Yeah. I I have this coach, Sylvia Badashi, and we talked about this, and she asks people, who is it? Is it someone you'd like to be in a lifelong conversation with, with, which I think is beautiful, but your questions might uh, better support navigating everyday life. I like that too, though, because I was thinking about, the, you know, the Gottmans who are these preeminent marital researchers, like they just have broken it all down. They've got such just, they, I'm so grateful for all of their science and they, did this interesting study where they had this two day workshop for couples and day one of the workshop is managing conflict. And day two of the workshop is like creating fun. Like the heart of every relationship is like, do less of the bad shit, do more of the good shit. You know, like that's really what it all boils Mm -hmm. down to. So they did a study. They were like, what if, what if only some couple, what if, what if couples only get one of these days of the workshop and who does better, right? Is it better if you get the conflict day or better if you get the like have fun day? And their hypothesis was, of course, you, you're going to do better if you have the conflict day, like having conflict management skills, doing less of the bad is going to help you have a better relationship in the long run. Turns out it was the opposite. The couples that got to spend the day talking about pleasure and play and joy and ease and shared interests and fun and novelty, those couples had a better outcome than the ones who learned less of the bad. So I like what Sylvia is saying about the someone you want to be in conversation with, right? Because the conversation is also about adventure and ease and play. So that is, I think that part matters a lot. Well, probably because for the fun day, you know, the guy said that we should grill and the woman said, okay, but she didn't really mean it. And they grilled, but she kind of resented him because that wasn't her version of fun. And he said, well, I thought you liked that. And she kind of kept it in and, you know, but uh, <laughs> that's very cynical. That's <laughs> cynical of me. I know. I just, I, I, I find like, I, I just, I am like obsessed with relationships, really, and like reflecting on them. And I just feel that like they're so hard, and like being alone is also so hard. And it's just like, oh, I guess, I guess it's just all so hard. And do you think? I mean, there's something about it's all hard because right now being alive is hard. Like where I think we're just, you know, when I talk to elders, you know, people who are in their seventies and eighties, like even our elders are telling us, no, no, this is a really freaking hard time, you know? Yeah. So I think yeah. it's also like, how could anything be easy when we're, you know, reproductive freedoms are being rolled back, climate crisis, polarization, da, 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 you know, like, I think that's the other thing is it just, there's so many things that feel so big or so on the edge that, that how could we feel ease and settled and really confident in our life choices at a time like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it is harder to feel confident. And I, I like I ask myself a lot about when I am like making a choice for the relationship and I, you know, I want to make sacrifices and compromises to benefit my relationship. And then I also come up against a wall sometimes where I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't want to sacrifice this if it feels like it's important to my identity or like me as an individual, you know, when I think about things like, you know, if it were up to my partner, we would live in the for, on the beach in Costa Rica. We would never return to Los Angeles. Our our kids. We would have seventeen kids tomorrow. You know, and it's like it, how 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 many things can I give towards the relationship, and how many things do I get to kind of hold for myself and say, okay, yes, but you know, being here is important to me, and just kind of like 
these deci- like these decisions, you know? And I don't know. I just think about it a lot. Well, so your podcast, Reimagining Love, what is that? I mean, I know from the title, but tell me the, convers- the sort of conversations you have on there. It's been... I mean, I had no, I don't know what it was like for you, but I had no idea that launching a podcast would be just such a rich, challenging, curious adventure. I was like, I mean, I've been a therapist and a teacher for a thousand years. Like I know how to do conversation, but hosting a podcast space is pretty freaking different than other spaces. But I mean, the heart of the show is like the heart of my work, which is relational self-awareness, which is you know, on understanding who we are in the context of our relationship. So I have guest experts on, you know, mostly from, from the field of mental health. And we talk about, you know, variety of topics that have to do with healing ourselves, healing our relationships. But then the other thing I do is I create these solo episodes where it's two of them a month, where it's just me talking through, you know, we kind of, I plant a flag, you know, on the topic of jealousy or, the spectrum between brutal honesty and people pleasing. Like, how do you know what goes from your thinking bubble to your speaking bubble with your partner or, Oh my God. Uh, you know, all the, like these, to- like, should I stay or should I go, you know, can we recover from infidelity? So I kind of choose a topic or a conundrum or a dilemma and I just kind of roll it out. So those episodes are just me talking through the science and the examples and the tools and the questions to ask yourself. And they're, so fun. I mean, they take me way, way, way too much time to create, but it's my happy yeah. place. You know, I love that like kind of integrative, how am I going to position this for the listener? So that's what the show is about is basically just helping you love, love and be loved, you know, and in, in, mm. in all of its complexity, we don't do any, we don't do any shortcuts. We don't do any hacks. I get DMs and they're like, I have to listen to this episode three times and take notes because it's just, there's a lot a lot there and I love That's it. amazing. One of the things you just said about brutal honesty, I like I, I feel this is an area where I've grown a bit in the last like five years where when I first started dating, I kind of had this idea that like I wasn't being fully either authentic or honest if I wasn't sort of sharing like like everything that was coming up for me and th- it was totally misguided. Like I would be sharing things to like absolve myself where they like were they were not supportive at all of my partner or of the relationship. And you you had posted something about like dishonesty versus discernment and sort of being able to like sit with these, these your own thoughts or feelings or whatever it is that comes up. And I think it's like particularly hard and I like with social media, with technology, but like in this like, this like ever moving dialogue of like share, share, share to like keep something for yourself inside and like sit with it. And I... I don't know. It must be a part of my like upbringing that like I feel I mean, I, I always go to guilt. That's just like my ice cream flavor that I always want to try. I'm just like guilt. Let me try. Let me have a bit of that. Like this idea that like you can like sit with your own thoughts about things and like before you like move or make a choice and like you don't have to feel guilty for that. Like you can be in reflection. OK, so many thoughts I'm having about that. I think mm-hmm. I think those of us have been socialized in the feminine. I think we have a particular fear that if we aren't speaking our truth, we are losing our voice and we will render ourselves invisible. I think there's a gendered piece of it there of like, Mm -hmm. I have to speak up because I'm, because I'm afraid of disappearing or I'm afraid of, like you were talking about, you know, ending up on the beach in Costa Rica with 17 babies, which I mean, whatever, that sounds maybe like a 
really delicious way to spend your life, but that fear like ending up in somebody else's, somebody else's imagination, right? Somebody else's yes, vision. Yes, that, that's, that's think, more so what it is. I think, know? right. No it's, it's offense easy again, to right. catastrophize. Yeah. And, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Because I think that's because that is, that's the nature of what's happened to women, you know, lots of women throughout history. And we can be, you know, I think that's, that, that doesn't go away. That's not, we can't snap our fingers and, and have that like fear go away. But then I think I hadn't, I don't know, I don't know that I put it together in quite that way, like you just did, which is social media is not just this kind of obsession with making sure you're sharing everything, but it also means that because social media is available, we don't have, there's an MIT professor, Sherry Turkle, who studies like basically, you know, the human technology interface. And she calls it like the loss of the boring bits, like where pre-iPhone, if I went to the dentist and I had to wait for 10 minutes for the dentist, I would just sit in the waiting room and like, whatever, stare into the middle space, you know? And in that, in those minutes, I would just be with my own musings, whatever, wherever my mind went. And I probably wouldn't tell anybody where my mind had gone because that was just normal that like, there are parts of the day where I'm just lost in my own thoughts. And because we always have our phones in our hands, we don't get lost in our own thoughts quite as much. We're in everybody else's thoughts where we're figuring out what the next thought is that we're going to share with the world. So in that loss of our own thoughts, I think maybe it does feel like, okay, what I do is when something comes up, it goes out of my mouth to my partner. I don't, I don't really need to be discerning because because I don't, I don't have that felt sense of some stuff is just mine. Some stuff is just for me. Right. What do you have? Are you sort of, do you have a rigorous relationship with your phone? Are you, do you regiment yourself at all or? I'm not as good. I am not as good as I used to be. I'm not as good as I could and should be. I don't know how it is for you. I mean, I think I have times where I will like <laughs> try to walk away from it or put it down, but there's plenty of stretch of the time where I just, I'm like, oh my God, I'm walking around my house with my phone in my hand. Like, I don't, I'm like going to change the laundry. Like, why do I need to be looking at Instagram on my way up the stairs to check the laundry? Like that is not healthy. So I think I'm slip. I think I'm slipping right now. <laughs> yeah. I think I have a problem. I think I have a problem. Yeah. It really disturbs me. My phone. It's like, I wake up and I look at it sometimes and I'm like, why am I respond? Why am I like reacting to like someone else's vacation before I've like brushed my teeth? Like, isn't this insane? And we have our, I mean, we have our, so many of us have our alarm clocks on our phones, right? So like literally we could. It's all baked in there. Yeah. Turn off our alarm and go right away. And it's like you said, before we brush our teeth, before our feet have touched the ground, we're consuming other people's. Yeah. That's really sick. Yeah. It's not great. For, <laughs> it's not great. And I think it feeds, I think it feeds and fuels this like itchiness or this ambivalence that we're talking about also. Like how could we feel comfortable with our own path when on our phone we're being shown a hundred different paths that other people are taking in right. their lives. It's so, it's easy to, it's easier to, to go into a place of insecurity when you don't set yourself, when I, at least, at least I'm speaking for myself, when I don't like set up self-care practices or like just places for me to like go and check in with myself, I can easily just like dissolve into like my Instagram feed or whatever else it is. I mean, I actually heard Rami Youssef talking on Armchair Expert and he said something so beautiful about, you know, he, I don't know how religious he is, but religion is a part of his life and he's married and he was talking about the different sort of things he's kind of set up for himself in his life. And he said, look, I designed my life so that I can be in consistent remembrance of what my values are. And I just thought that was so beautiful that like 
that that makes sense to me because it's easy for me in moments of feeling angry or frustrated or scared to kind of like choose relief, whatever that is, like smoking a joint or going out. Like I, it doesn't, you know, but the idea that you're like constructing your life to kind of mirror back to you your values, that's like a really beautiful way for me to think about monogamy, for me to think about starting a family, th- those things, you know, these bigger things that like you, you weigh the, the, the sacrifice and, but also what you're creating. I love that. I love that. Right. And in that way, it's so, it, it's, it's a reminder that like the, the ultimate, the ultimate trusting relationship is, is the trust we have with ourselves. And so it's like, I, what you're at, what you're putting into voice is like, what if I trusted myself to say that whatever life I create, whatever monogamous partnered family base, like that to do that is a, it's a declaration that I am worth trusting myself. And it's saying that these are choices, these are choices I'm making. Yes, there's grief because there's grief that comes with every choice and choosing that you're saying goodbye to what other paths, you know, are no longer available or aren't available right now. But in doing it, it's, it's a declaration of like self, like I value myself, love myself, trust myself enough to make choices for myself. And then to just live into those choices, imperfect as they are, you know, that, that that's, yeah, yeah. That it becomes, it becomes a little bit of a, a little bit of a container. Like, I think that we get afraid of like the, we think the opposite of freedom is prison, but maybe the opposite of freedom is just like a container, like a container, which within which you get to experience freedom, you know, that's not, I mean, I know that in my own, you know, I've been married and monogamous for many, many, many years, but I also feel free to say, whatever, I'm writing a new book or I'm having a girl's night or I'm doing, you know, this, like, so they think that's, they're not opposites, you know? Yeah. That's a good question. Like, is like, if, if you think that free, like, I don't know that freedom is like aloneness. That seems like it doesn't, that isn't right. Right. I mean, I'm right. But I think that's what, when I think about being free, I would imagine being, I, w- I would imagine something that feels autonomous. But the idea that like you're most free when you're like not partnered or people do that, people often say, listen, now that you're not in a relationship, it's time to work on yourself. Whereas like you can still do that work like in relationship. 100%, 100%, right, right. It's for, yeah. for heterosexual women, I think it's a cent- really important for, like I know part of, part the the complaint I hear all the time from heterosexual women is that there is that the men they're partnered with aren't working on themselves. And so in fact, when a man does say, I'm going to go to therapy. Because they're I'm, perfect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they're perfect because the culture has said like, do not hold up a mirror and look at yourself. Like that shit's dangerous. But when a man like joins a men's group, goes on a men's retreat, whatever, like starts to do that work, like that, that is like that, that creates a kind of like, right. That is not the, it's not either I'm working on myself or I'm in a relationship, but that certainly is not a, not a binary. Yeah. Right. Well, you, you mentioned something about, this is all stuff I pulled from your page about like your preferences or your biases towards falling in love, revealing information about yourself. What did you mean by that? Mm. Well, it goes back to like the Disney did us dirty idea. I think that we, I think we, we tend to make hierarchies of better and worse ways of falling in love, better or worse. You know, we Mm. have notions of how it should feel to fall in love. And so I am all about giving people permission that what, however you find, however you find your way into partnership, you know, some of us like fall, 
some of us step, some of us are like slowly and gently coaxed with a little treat. Limp. <laughs> Limp. <laughs> Limp into love. Yeah. That we don't need to, we don't need to say that any of those are prognostic indicators. We don't need to say that any of those are better or worse. And I think in fact, for those of us who step really carefully into love, what it says is I've been hurt. And I'm scared or I've mm. seen my I've seen my parents crash and burn and never quite rise up again. And so I want people to be really, really gentle with themselves that they get to have their process and they get to go at their own pace and that it's not less going slow is not less going fast is not more, you know. Yeah, I you you wrote about how and I couldn't agree more that like reality TV dating is our fascination about how love takes root and grows, which I think was said perfectly because that's totally what it's about. And I wonder like, why do you, why do you think we're so enamored by that and watching how that unfurls for other people? We are so fascinated by it. Like it's not, and that genre of TV is not that new. Like I remember, I remember where I was when I first heard there was going to be this show called Survivor. And I don't know, I guess probably the real world was like before. Uh, I remember that too. Survivor, yeah. I mean, it's like, so it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty new phenomenon. But one, you know, the fact that now there are like, like it's a whole genre, not just reality TV, but also like dating-based reality TV. I think we've always, I think we've, there's something intrinsic within us to be like voyeuristic about love. Like I think we're just super fascinated and captivated about it. It's like the greatest you know, it's a, it's a story, right? We're so fascinated by like stories and how's it going to happen? And, you know, what are they each doing? And we get super invested, right? We make heroes and villains. We have opinions, we have hot takes, all of this. So reality TV like gives us a chance to do something that I think is just kind of a human fascination, but it, I think it inadvertently, or perhaps maybe not so like it, it reinforces so many thin, uninteresting scripts about, you know, about how it should look yeah yeah it's so true like we like project all of the I mean it, I like I am constantly wishing I was like an anthropology major when I watch these shows because I'm like so fascinated by by you know humans and their hierarchy and like I do this joke on stage about Shark Tank and I love watching Shark Tank and I love the judges on Shark Tank and I make this joke about how I feel like Mark Cuban like I have this like daddy complex with him and I kind of and I view him as like the monkey with the most bananas and you know, he's just there with all of his cash and he's like, wants to protect you. And we, it's really like, we're fascinated watching other people. And I think with like The Bachelor, like, you know, it's amazing watching women being like, well, this one, like this one deserves him more and like he gets her and that makes her higher status. And it's like a status thing also. And I just feel in so many ways, like, we're all, I mean, unless we like do work on ourselves, which hopefully God willing we do, but like, we're just like all seven-year-old kids at the driver's seat of like ourselves. Uh-huh. Yep. Trying to make sense of it all, right. Trying to make sense yeah. of all of these like layers of what it means to be a human. Like when you talk about, you know, like the right Mark Cuban and the daddy kind of like, that is all like, those are like archetypes, right? Like these like very human, like ancient, ancient archetypes about value, right? You're right. An anthropologist would have a totally different lens than a psychologist versus an economist. So we're all, yeah, we're all trying to make sense of it. Like you said, like little, and maybe that's, maybe that's like the beauty of it. If we watch, I mean, I guess you could watch any of these shows 
with a relational self-awareness lens where you're just being endlessly curious about your own reactions to it, right? Because in that way, it's just like a, it's like, you know, like the Rorschach inkblot, you know, like whatever you see or pick up on says something to you about you, right? And says something to you about what you're afraid of, what you value, what you're interested in. You know, so I think that's the way to do it. The problem is we most often watch like with our arms folded, like way back, like kind of in judgment rather than yeah. in, in fascination. Yeah. Is that, I mean, this idea of like the, how is the, what did you, what did you, what is it called again? The Rorschach? The Rorschach inkblot. Mm-hmm. Roar, Rorschach ink blot. Did you watch the Stutz documentary on Netflix? No, I haven't yet. But that well, one I have. Really I have Netflix. With the, I know. With, with the therapist references. With the therapist. Okay, this weekend. The but he does, you know, it's Jonah Hill, like, does this documentary on his therapist, and he, he does something that, I, I mean, most therapists would say, you can't do that, where he, he says, I want to hear more about your life, and basically, like, you know, let's look behind the curtain, which... In a way, it's kind of like you watch it and you're like, oh, Jonah Hill, like he's now like making a project for his therapist. And it's kind of like, pick me, like, let me be your favorite, like getting the validation for it, like all of these things that are are going on. Um, But it is interesting. And the 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 therapist talks about like your shadow self, which that's how I identify with um, what we were just talking about, where like you see something like it's like you spot it, you got it is what Julian would say, my partner of just like, if I I notice the things that like piss me off and I then look and I'm like, Oh fuck, that's the thing I hate the most about myself. But uh, you, you also uh, on your page, you talked about uh, you have an app. Is that your app? Or is it, what is the app you're referencing? Felt or do you mind? What is it? It used to be called mind as of yesterday. It's called felt. So, okay. Uh huh. Had like a little head swivel on that. It's an app that. So Mark Groves, whose um, Instagram is Create the Love, uh, he partnered with a guy named Aaron, who has been in the in the tech industry for a while, and they partnered to create the world's first um, emotional network. So yeah, we got a set of like a set of experts who we go you know we go live on this app. It's it's a community of basically a community of, you know, people who are interested in having these the conversations that you and I are having right now, but all aspects of life and dating and work and identity and trauma and sex. And it's a pretty, it's a really neat space. It's a desire to, you know, use technology kind of for the good, like to create community where we can be like learning and growing and, you know, healing together. It goes, it goes live on the app itself or on Instagram or where is it? Go live. It's a, we, I go live on the app. And then if you're a member of the app, for example, you know, that like 1030 on Fridays, I do, you know, we call it office hours for me. So I do office hours and I'll talk about some topic and you can, if you sign on, you can type, you know, questions or comments to me and talk to other people who are there, you know, typing. And then I also do like a series, like I've done a series on everything, a series on grief, a series on blended families, a series on my favorite one, I think was, I did a whole series on our, like the intersection of like relationship and body image, like all the shit that comes up and plays out between Whoa. ourselves and our partners about our bodies. And it was my favorite one. When we judge our partner, when we judge our partner's body, when we, and our partner judges our body, when we feel self-conscious in our body in front of our partner, when we compare, I mean, it just was like, it was really rich. Oh. So I, Wait, give me, wait, keep going though. Tell me more about that. I, cause I'm constantly just ripping to shreds my own body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But then I also want to talk about your life as a stand up comedian because it's the job. I freaking love watching stand up comedy and it is to me the scariest job on earth. Oh, Even though I'm in yeah. front of an audience all the time. So I want to, mm. so I want to also talk about that. Okay. We'll, we'll go into that after. Okay. I think, you know, 
I think we so often think about, I mean, those of us, especially who've been socialized as girls and women, we have such a troubled relationship with our bodies because our culture, you know, we've been good listeners, right? Our culture has taught us that our bodies are never, ever right as they are. They always need tweaking and firming and softening and da da da. So, so fine. That's a, that's a constant dialogue or chatter inside of our own. You were saying it's inside of, you know, your head is inside of my head since I was eight years old and my doctor put me on a diet. Like that's, that never goes away, but it, and so it feels so interior and so personal and it plays out between ourselves and our partners, right? We imagine that our partners relate to our bodies just the same way that we do. And, you know, by and large, hopefully the partners of the land don't, you know, have the same yeah. issues with our bodies that we have, but it becomes right. this relational dynamic, right? Where we, whatever, shut down or pull back, or we project their judgment onto us. It was really, I think that's a, a really like important area for us to explore is the, is, is, is under, like, I want our partners to understand our own yeah. relationships with our body so that they know how to, you know, just tread tread tenderly and, and, and for us to be curious about our partner's under, you know, relationship with their own bodies. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I just, I just think it takes a lot of undoing to move through the world in a way where you don't assume everyone looks at you, how you look at you. I mean, I think it's amazing that everyone, I, I think it's amazing that people wake up and get out of bed and fall in love. I think it's amazing considering, considering everything, thing we're dealing with i mean this is just it's just shit on shit on shit shit sunday and and somehow you find someone and you fall in love and you like your world like feels like it revolves around suddenly everything you know turns from black and white to color and i think it's i think it's really the only thing that matters in the world <laughs> i mean it's so true not to be corny but you know but stand up you're terrified of doing stand up i th i'm so fascinated by it and i think it's so scary so how scared are you <laughs> how do you deal uh, with the I'm fear? Not, I'm not scared anymore. You know, when I first started doing stand-up, I, I would like have a show on the calendar and I would be thinking about it for days in advance and I would get like sick about it in my stomach and my stomach is always the first thing to go whenever I'm like nervous about anything. But now I think I've just like built out that muscle to a point where like I feel, I can feel a little bit of like uh, jitters, but like good jitters and it will never take me out. It just doesn't in the same way. Like it's just... It's just like going to the gym. Like, I mean, but I'm sure you feel that way about like talking in front of people, you know? So, but what about stand up then itself is vulnerable? Is it that you're going for, is like the goal is a laugh? And like, if you like miss that goal? I think I, like when we were, when we were in the pen, you know, in the pandemic, it was so, it was, there were so many months when I didn't, when I, I was still teaching, but everything was, was on my computer. And so I had no feedback. And the first time I went and did a live event, I, I gave a talk and I said something and the audience laughed. I literally almost burst into tears. And I was like, oh, oh my God. I mean, I love, and so I think that when I'm teaching, when I'm teaching, I am always going for a laugh. And I know how good it feels when people laugh. Like I could just cry right now. Like it just is the greatest feeling. But I think there is, I think so that, that must be what it is, is when you're a stand-up comedian, like you know, like you are so, you're unapologetic about the goal is for them to laugh. Where I feel like I get to be sneaky. I get to be like, we're talking about this. We're talking about this, right. but you might laugh. And then it's going to feel really good to me. But you are just like, you're putting it out there. That's what it's for. Well, it's funny. I actually, I wanted to be a teacher. And, and I and I was asking myself why I wanted to be a teacher. And I thought, well, it'd be so fun to make the class laugh. And then I said, just don't, you don't need to teach 
then just be a stand-up. But that did occur to me, and I actually had an English teacher in high school who was, like, the funniest person I ever had. Like, I just couldn't believe how she was. She was just hysterical. And she made me want to be a teacher, and I was like, oh, no, 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 you just you want to be, like, a performer. You want to be a stand-up. But that's funny that you, like, look for those... I would be doing that constantly if I were a teacher. Because then, cause then they would get to be really impressed that you're funny. It's like... It's like saying you look good after you just had a baby. Like it becomes like doubly awesome. Whereas like I work, I work out and look good. Then it's like it's less amazing that I'm funny. That's right. That's right. That's right. Which is not fair. Well, it's yeah. not fair. But it's, how did you know? How did you know you were funny? Or how did you like? How did you kind of take that part of you in? How did you get to know that part of you? When I was younger, my dad would he would like whisper like funny things for me to say into my ear and I would go up to people and say them. I didn't understand what I was saying, but I vividly recall this happening when I was like, I must've been like five, six. And like, I would tap my grandma and like my grandma's friends. And I would be like, who, you know, he would say things like, who are you ladies going with to prom? And I just, I I remember like the, the, the feeling of like, you know, like fiery warmth in my chest and, how how delighted people were and I just and when I think about that I think wow that felt really good and also I guess it was because it got my dad's approval and it got my (laughs) I could do that whole thing of like that was making my dad happy and that made me feel good and my whole life's about showing my dad I'm worth something but I really like making people laugh I, I myself love laughing. I saw you're like, what's your favorite compliment to get? I saw you post that. And I was wondering, I was like, what is the compliment I get? And if someone tells me I'm so pretty, I don't even like, or, or I'm pretty. They don't, they're not telling me I'm so pretty. I doesn't even like land. Like, I don't even, I don't even like hear it. I don't know why that, but if someone tells me how funny I am, it like hits so deeply. I want, I, it like just, I melt like it, it just matters to me so much. And I also was so sad growing up being closeted and like struggled so much that like being funny and being dry and kind of like holding myself to this like higher level of awareness of like, I see what's going on and I can kind of say, well, look at that and look at that felt empowering. Yeah. You, you couldn't be seen, but you could, right. you could sure as shit see, you could see the whole thing. Right. It, 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 in that sense, it was like, a, right, it was like a very protective thing that I, I can kind of hold this thing up and be super armored and walled off, but I can like look from like my high post down at everyone and like make jokes. And that keeps people from looking at me because everything I was doing was so orchestrated to like hide myself. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. How much do I owe you? Oh my God, nothing. <laughs> this is so delightful. I was oh going to say- I love, I mean, there's something like, I mean, now I'm like spinning out and this is when, when you come on my show, we'll talk about humor. Cause I think there's something so relational about humor, right? Like it only, humor only exists. I mean, I guess we can crack ourselves. My daughter, we have an 18 year old daughter and she's like, I think I'm the funniest person. Like she cracks herself up. She keeps like notes on her phone of all the like hilarious things that just happen inside of her mind. But I think mostly humor is relational, right? Like that was like the warm feeling you describe when the grandmas and, you know, and the old ladies would laugh, like that's that's the relational part. It's like, I put something out there and it's your response. That is what, that is what like nourishes. So fascinating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It is like, this is the language with which I know best to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have no, a note list like your daughter. 
my phone. And you probably have to now, right? Because you have to be thinking about your new material and like every. But I've, I've had it since I was 17. So maybe she'll be a stand up. You know, if you're lucky and you fucked her up enough. <laughs> this was such a good chat you're so great thank you so much T- tell everyone where they can find you my website is dralexandrasolomon.com and on the website you'll find whatever hundreds of blog articles links to the podcast links to social media e-courses and books and all of the things that's a good place to start and instagram is dr.alexandra.solomon thank you thank you so much Allie. 